Welcome to Let's Talk Trade, a podcast by the World Trade Organization. In this new season, you will hear about the impact and the implications of the outcomes of the 12th Ministerial Conference held in Geneva in June 2022. I'm Daniel Prusen, spokesperson of the WTO, and for the coming 40 minutes, I can promise you a special treat. A conversation with WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala about the art of negotiating multilateral deals in challenging times. So let's talk trade. The economic and geopolitical headwinds ahead of this meeting were fierce, with surging inflation, supply chain disruptions, the war in Ukraine, and the ongoing pandemic contributing to a perfect storm of diminished expectations for trade's contribution to international solidarity. In the midst of this tempest, the WTO's Director General, Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala, she was given the task of trying to cajole, persuade, and push members into producing an outcome that would not only address some of the key challenges facing the global commons, but rebuild confidence in the WTO and, by extension, in multilateralism itself. At the beginning of the conference, Dr. Ngozi made it clear in no uncertain terms that the task ahead was not easy. Will the road to deliver at this MC12 be smooth? Absolutely not. In the end, we had a substantial number of outcomes that altogether formed the so-called Geneva package. So, how did she do it? How did she manage to forge consensus on some of the most urgent issues facing the world today? Are we likely to see more results in the coming months? Dr. Ngozi, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Let's talk about the 12th Ministerial Conference. MC12 was a successful meeting, but a grueling one as well, running 36 hours beyond the scheduled finish. You and others went without sleep during that stretch and had little sleep in the previous days. How did you manage to survive? And what was your secret to staying awake? Did you have any particular comfort food or drink to get you through? (laughs) Yes, it was indeed grueling. And at times it was uh, really dicey with a a lot of uh, moments that were quite difficult. How did I get through? I didn't even remember to eat, really. I suppose it was adrenaline. I remember drinking lots of cups of coffee. Not that it has any effect on me, actually. It's just to have something warm in my mouth. And uh, then I ate lots of plantain chips. Had you ever gone through a meeting like that where you had to work for so many hours without sleep? Yes, I've actually done that. Uh, Once when we were negotiating the Paris Club Agreement for Nigeria, when I was finance minister, 2004-2005, we had to negotiate uh, the $30 billion of Nigeria's debt. We were trying to uh, get the Paris Club to forgive all or part of it. And after 18 months of work, we finally got to the negotiations uh, table, which was at the French Treasury. And uh, they basically locked us in this venue within the treasury compound for three days. We were negotiating night and day, and we were only allowed in the morning to go out and take a quick shower and then run back to the negotiating place. So it was quite an experience. Three days nonstop. At the end, you get it done. You said before MC12 that achieving one or two outcomes would be a success in your book. In the end, there were seven to ten agreements, decisions, declarations, or outcomes, depending on how you count it. Did you ever imagine that such an outcome was possible? Not really, Dan. I imagined success was possible, but I defined success to be one or two outcomes. 
The fact that we got beyond that, I think, was uh, one of the most gratifying things, especially when we look at the e-commerce moratorium, because it meant that we had something we could take to people, which is a fisheries agreement and trips waiver. We could take to business, which is the e-commerce moratorium, and, and we could take to the world. What is the broader importance of this package for the multilateral trading system, and more importantly, for people? Uh, you've stressed many times since your arrival at the WTO that the organization needs to be more responsive to the needs of people. How does this package address that? Well, two things. The first, with respect to the broader implication of the package, and I hear people now call it the Geneva package, which is great. The fact that at this time, where the geopolitical tensions are really significant, whether it's between China and the U.S., between Ukraine and Russia, there's a war. Uh, there are so many stresses in the system. And this is a time where multilateralism itself is being called into question. And, and there's a lot of skepticism. To have an agreement with 164 members of which Ukraine, Russia, China, the U.S., EU, developing countries developed around the table, I think is a strong signal that multilateralism uh, works and can work. Uh, so I think that sends a broader message to those people who are saying, well, maybe multilateralism is passe and we can't do it anymore. So it's quite pleasing that the WTO could deliver that. And you mentioned there were very strong headwinds coming into this meeting. The pandemic was continuing, the war in Ukraine, growing concerns about uh, the direction of the global economy, supply chain disruptions. It wasn't a very auspicious uh, atmosphere for this meeting to start in? Absolutely not. It was not auspicious. And just particularly, we were not sure how we were really going to manage the, the negotiations. Remember, because of the Russia-Ukraine issue, the mere fact that some countries had signaled they wouldn't be able to be in negotiations. We had tried to work out the same kind of methodology we had uh, prior to the ministerial of negotiating in different small groups and bilaterally. It was not auspicious at all. So we had to contend with that. And quite frankly, when I was looking at some of the press, they had already declared it a failure. But we didn't let that um, stop us. And I really appreciate uh, members. I want to say a word of thanks to the members, to the ministers, to the secretariat staff for sticking with it and believing and working so intensely uh, throughout this time. You also asked me about uh, what does it mean for people. One of the reasons I think this package of agreements, declarations, decisions is very important is because part of it responds to immediate emergencies and global issues that people are struggling with daily. Let's take the food side. We had the agreement, a decision not to have export restrictions on humanitarian food and supplies for the World Food Program. That is a very worthy thing in that, according to David Beasley, who tweeted he was so happy to see it. That's the head of the WFP. That it would make it easier, more affordable for them to get access to food supplies. That responds to what is happening now with the inflationary pressures on food. I'm not saying it solves all of that problem, but it makes sure that from the WTO perspective, we don't add to it. It's still on food. We had this declaration uh, on food security, which also uh, endeavors not to impose export restrictions and prohibitions or anything that could make the supply chain for food difficult. 
that's just an example. Fisheries is all about the 260 million fisherwomen and men and others who depend directly or indirectly on fisheries, as well as it's about sustainability. And uh, so if you look at it, um, responding to immediate needs, the pandemic and the trips waiver where developing countries will not have ability to manufacture more vaccines. All of this is about people. And when members look at this, they ought to step back and be proud of what they've done. Let's focus a little bit on one of those agreements, the fisheries subsidies uh, agreement, 21, 20 plus years in the making. The first WTO agreement with environmental sustainability at its core. What might this mean in terms of the WTO's role in facing other challenges to the global commons, such as climate change or pandemic response and food security issues? It's a very good signal. We've already shown we can do something on food security and pandemic, but on environmental issues, on sustainability issues for the first time, this is the first WTO agreement that shows that the WTO can be responsive on environmental issues, which will include climate change. So it's an excellent signal. And I'll tell you how significant uh, it is. When we were in Lisbon for the Oceans Conference, I was on a panel, but prior to that, they read out that the WTO had agreed on the harmful fishery subsidies agreement. The whole just erupted in applause. And then when I told them that Ambassador Santiago Wilson and the entire team from the Secretariat were in the hall, they had come, he stood up, people applauded really spontaneously. That will show you the extent to which people, whose business it is to care about oceans, sustainability, and biodiversity, the extent to which they appreciated this agreement. I think it sets the stage for us to be able to do more on climate change to contribute to the sustainable development goals. Uh, on fisheries, there's still more work to do, nevertheless, um, particularly in regards to subsidies that contribute to overfishing and overcapacity. Do you think members can get a result on this with uh, a bit more time? It's going to be tough. Already before we, uh, Ambassador Wills and the team arrived at this slice of the fishery subsidies, which deals with IUU, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing on our high seas, and some overfishing and overcapacity, all of which is important. There had been, you know, very serious arguments between members and debates uh, about how to deal with the rest of the harmful subsidies and overfishing and overcapacity and issues of special and differential treatment were really central to this. And um, I think that we're going to have not an easy time to negotiate more disciplines. I think the good news is that members are agreed uh, that this work has to be done, that there's still additional work. Uh, it will be tough uh, going to find a landing zone, but I think it can be done. One of the most important outcomes, as you mentioned, was the ministerial declaration on the TRIPS agreement. Uh, the so-called TRIPS or IP waiver, a year ago, even last November, an agreement on this seemed impossible. Uh, walk us through how members were able to come together on this and the role that you played in getting a deal. <laughs> we got the deal. It was really quite tough. Actually, I used this opportunity to thank the DDGs uh, as well as the staff. DDG Gonzalez was really uh, central to the TRIPS, DDG Ellard on fisheries, DDG Pagaman agriculture and DDG Zhang and all, all the LDC graduation issues. So I'm grateful to all of them. But uh, coming back to the TRIPS waiver, a year before I arrived, this 
requests by the proponents South Africa, India, and the developing countries had been put before the TRIPS Council asking for a waiver. And the discussion and debate had been going on. When I arrived, I saw that pandemic was raging. And really, it was very clear. Why is this organization not able to respond uh, to something that is killing people around the world and is of the moment? And that really bothered me. But anyway, I waited to see whether something could come of this debate in the TRIPS Council. And when it didn't, when I listened and members were still reading the same statements they'd been reading months before, I I really said to myself, something different has to happen here. Otherwise, we'll end up with the usual thing. Five years from now, people will be reading the same statements and talking past each other. So just um, sitting down and trying to think it through, I, I thought of the idea of maybe a small group of members talking to each other, you know, proponents and non proponents, uh, and trying to come up with an idea. I was convinced personally that we could find a compromise package that all could agree on, but how to go about it, this was the best I could come up with. So I thought, okay, if we take the US and EU and and the South Africa and India side, uh, maybe this will do something. Um, so that was how it came about. We then called the four ministers. We decided to do it at the ministerial level. Because at ambassadorial level, it didn't seem to be going anywhere. So clearly, something different had to be done. So that's how it came about, four ministers together. I must commend the four ministers. They became known as the Quad. Why do I commend them? Because they really engaged. It was possible to negotiate, serious negotiation with each other virtually. We did it all virtually. I remember once Catherine Tai was in a car on the way to the airport, and we were going to have a meeting. She joined in, even whilst going. Piyush Goyal in India was uh, campaigning. They were doing campaigning for some local election. And it was meeting at uh, 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. He still joined in. Uh, he flew back from wherever he was. He joined in. I, I remember Valdis uh, Dombrovskis of the EU exhausted. Uh, I think he had gone to an ECOFIN meeting or something or was about to go. And it was really tough. He he tuned in at another time. And Ibrahim Patel, on a visit with President Ramaphosa to West Africa, somehow tuned in. I'm giving you all this to give you a flavor that these four ministers went to great lengths. It wasn't easy for them to have this series of meetings. And we were doing it two, three times a week, sometimes one night after the other. And wherever they were, they committed and tuned in and negotiated with each other. So that's how it worked. I was surprised when, after a month, we still didn't have a consensus on the outlines of a package that could be shown to the rest of the membership. So a month, two months, three months. It took us four months. That shows you just how difficult the whole trip's thing. When we did uh, finally come up with this uh, package, it leaked, which was another, (laughs) you know, that was really troubling because before we had a game plan for how we would then share it with the rest of the membership, but it leaked, which was very unfortunate. And that also forced us into a very difficult position, but um, made it much more difficult to get the consensus. Do you think positions hardened a little bit after that became public? Absolutely. Positions hardened more beyond what they should because members did not have a chance to be briefed 
on what went into getting that compromise. They were suddenly confronted with it leaking in the press. And I can imagine how many ambassadors felt because in some cases, their capital saw it on the internet before they, were, they were even saw it. Everybody got really upset. Uh, and for us, it was very, very difficult. And it was one incident during uh, these negotiations that I think is very regrettable. Nevertheless, we didn't let it uh, stop us because I think that Whoever leaked it, I thought to myself, this is partly what they want to achieve. Throw a spanner in the works, stop this. And it's just too important, particularly for developing countries who want to manufacture. So we, we went ahead. So that's a bit the dynamics. Once it leaked, all hell broke loose. Everybody wanted to know what this was all about. So we had to do a lot of explanation, bringing groups in, pleading with groups not to take it badly, trying scrambling more or less, where we, we had imagined an orderly process. And I, I think it became just much harder to get the rest of the membership convinced. Yet at the end, it seemed that the problem may have been more resentment not being in the room rather than with the substance of the deal. Because in the end, correct me if I'm wrong, the final mm. deal was very close to what the Quad was discussing. Yes, I think it was both. Both resentment as well as uh, a lot of substantive questions. If we had had time to do it properly the way we had planned, it may not have been that bad. At the end of the day, remember that civil society was so much against this deal. Um, and there was also no chance to explain to them. Eight of them asked to see me when I was in the U.S. And I, I spoke to them and tried to explain just how difficult. They were very dissatisfied because they wanted this 100% waiver or nothing. At the same time, the private sector was so upset, really finding it um, very difficult, even though there was all efforts to reassure that this is not going to disincentivize research and innovation, but they were really against it. So at that point in time, I thought maybe we do have a compromise that is a real one and is workable because no side likes it. And that's the nature of a compromise. So with civil society knocking it, the private sector knocking it, each side trying to derail it and say there should be no agreement, I kind of felt we've got the right balance. When we went to negotiations, it was also extremely tough, tougher than I thought with the whole membership. But at the end of the day, uh, we got it. Now, let me tell you, there was so much drama around it. We didn't really get it to one minute before closing session because we were still negotiating aspects of it uh, during MC12 with ministers. And then we waited to hear from the British who had particular problems, and they said they were waiting on 10 Downing Street for final instructions. And then we were waiting, the Americans and the Chinese were supposed to come together on some language about uh, the eligible members, and the U.S. was waiting on the White House. So... There we were about to have a closing session and we didn't have answers. Luckily, before we had it, we heard from the UK. And then as we went to the podium, the US came up and said they had had the answer. So trips had a lot of drama, but in the end, it was okay. Let's address one of the criticisms of this. It won't really change much, this TRIPS waiver agreement. Will this deal deliver in terms of improving vaccines and reducing vaccine inequality? Absolutely. It will. Some people said, oh, but enough vaccines have been manufactured now. You really don't need to manufacture in, in developing countries. That's now. 
But what if there's another outbreak and then there's a need or a new variant for which a new vaccine is made? And then do developing countries have to stand at the back of the queue again? With this agreement, they don't. All those who have the capacity to manufacture, like in South Africa, they have lines ready. They can use this agreement to manufacture enough, and with the waiver of the export prohibition, they can export to other African countries. And I can tell you there are other in Africa, at least I know that Senegal, Rwanda, my own country, Nigeria, and a few others are getting ready to produce one or the other type of vaccine. In Asia, Thailand has the capacity, Bangladesh has capacity, Pakistan has capacity, and Latin America, Argentina. Brazil, of course, we know. Mexico. These are all places where if something happens now, we don't have to be so stressed out because they can have recourse to this and be able to manufacture. Let's touch briefly on the other related important outcome from MC12, which was the ministerial declaration on the WTO response to the COVID-19 pandemic and preparedness for future pandemics. Quite a long title there. How will this also help in terms of trade playing a role in the pandemic response? I think that side of the pandemic response uh, on the preparedness is also very important, not only for this pandemic, but for the future pandemics, because it does certain things. I think it really speaks to the side of our monitoring function, because it very much encourages members with best endeavor uh, to look at trade measures that they have and to prompt reporting to make sure that nothing impedes supply chains. We had that during the first pandemic. I shouldn't call it the first one. During this pandemic, you remember at the height, there were 119 measures, export prohibitions and restrictions. We managed to eventually bring them down to 35. But it's to guard against this kind of approach should there be a future pandemic. This declaration speaks to that and, and asks members to do their best endeavor not to have these restrictions. And if they must, let it be transparent and proportionate. I think that's very, very important. It's not only about manufacturing vaccines or even therapeutics and diagnostics. It's about making sure that there's a free flow of trade in order to make those things possible. So uh, that's one. I think there's another part of it that I also think is important. During the pandemic, Many manufacturers complained of the diversity of regulatory environments and regulatory measures from one country to the other. And uh, this declaration talks about members sharing information on regulatory approaches and cooperating to make common regulatory approaches, which will make it easier for business and manufacturers to operate. Those are just two areas. There are several others, but I actually think it's a very important declaration. Um, a big issue coming into this ministerial conference with the war in Ukraine, supply chain issues, and drought in major producing regions. It's led to a sharp jump in commodity prices. How does the ministerial declaration on food security address this, and can it produce tangible results? It's a bit analogous to what we're seeing on export restrictions and prohibitions with respect to vaccines, medical supplies and equipment for the pandemic. When you come to the food side, the WTO members have an important role to play in this. And uh, both for the WFP decision and for the food security declaration, I think the important 
uh, contributions they make. First of all, the WFP, everyone agreeing multilaterally, we will have no export restrictions, as I mentioned before, means a cheaper flow of humanitarian aid. But when you come to the food security declaration itself, it also talks about keeping down export restrictions and prohibitions. Why is this so important? If you remember the 2008-2009 food crisis, we noticed that members put on so many export restrictions and prohibitions and they led to price spikes. They worsened the problem of food inflation at the time. So learning that lesson, having this declaration of members saying, we will not do this, and if we have to do this, it will be temporary according to WTO rules and we will quickly inform uh, and uh, uh, so that the monitoring exercise, everybody can be clear of who is doing what when, I think is very helpful. I guess if there was one disappointment, it was the fact that we didn't get an agreement on a work program uh, for the future negotiations on agriculture. How do you see a way forward on this extremely difficult issue, one that has vexed our members oh, since uh, the creation of the WTO, basically? Yes, agriculture is such an emotional issue. For the 16 months I've been here watching members uh, negotiate on agriculture, it's a little bit different from the others. So it's extremely difficult. Two, domestic politics around agriculture in each and every country, uh, rich or poor, developed or developing, is fierce. It's just that kind of a sector. So it's made it very difficult uh, to make um, advances. And yes, it's, uh, we can say we're a bit disappointed that we didn't move on the normal agricultural negotiations. Well, remember, we did get the food security and food uh, declaration and the WFP decision out of the agriculture group. So they had some achievements. We did have a paper, you know, a negotiated document, but at the end of the day, it didn't go forward. But how do we move this forward? Everybody says it's so important. I remember one of the areas, domestic support, you know, agricultural subsidies at the G7. I was also admitting to the G7 leaders that this is the one area we didn't make the progress we would like. One of the things I said to them, one reason why we do have to work on agriculture is let's just take the area of domestic support. We have about $750 billion or more dollars in domestic support now, in agricultural subsidies. And if we don't do anything about it, it will be a trillion dollars by 2030. I think even the leaders, when they heard those numbers, I could see they were surprised because these subsidies are mounting and uh, accumulating, and they are trade-distorting subsidies that make it difficult to compete. But my thinking is that we need to step back a bit and rethink our approach. You know, I've always maintained since I came to the WTO that continuing to do things the same way and expecting a different result is, doesn't make sense, if with all due respect. We've now shown that with MC12, if we push and do things a little differently, we can get good results. We have to apply that to agriculture. How are we going to do things differently? How do we rethink our approach? One of the things that I, 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 I shared or I said was, it's about stepping back, maybe taking some time, going off together on a retreat, using that to brainstorm on agriculture. You know, kind of take off your ties and your jacket, wear your T-shirt, be relaxed. Let's all be friendly. This is not about negotiating. We're just trying to think together how we can better serve the people who put us here 
by getting another approach to agriculture. The uh, so-called MC12 outcome document agreed by ministers sets the way forward for discussions on WTO reform. What issues are likely to be addressed? And does reform mean the organization needs a complete overhaul and re- reinvent itself? Or does it need to be more in, just a little bit more in sync with the issues of the 21st century? WTO reform means different things to different members. And this WTO reform part has to be very much member-driven because it is what they want to reform. But also, from the point of view of the Secretariat, we need to do things with an eye to what is happening in the 21st century in trade. To me, WTO reform, and I hope to many members, means looking at our core functions and saying, are they fit to propel us into the 21st century? We are in the 21st century and things are moving very fast. We need to look at our rules. Some of the rules we have on the books, are they up to date? Do we need to think of how to upgrade them? Do we need to make new rules like the e- for e-commerce and digital trade, which I'm happy to say members are negotiating on it. So for me, it is reviewing the core functions, dispute settlement. I think when you talk of WTO reform, most people boil it down to dispute settlement. Of course, it's much larger than that. But the dispute settlement system, one of the very nice things out of this, uh, of MC12, was the agreement of a date, March 2024, by which we must have a functioning dispute settlement system. Which is not very far away meaning that we have to work really, really hard in the next year and a half in order to deliver. So having an end date for that is very helpful. But the other people think WTO reform mean other things. We have to look at the development issues, for instance. And many developing countries, least developed countries, feel that their issues have not been looked at in the way they should and that they should be center stage. If we say that WTO is to work for people to bring poorer developing countries uh, into prosperity, if trade is to be an instrument, there are issues of special and differential treatment. How should we approach that in future? How do we make sure that those countries that really need it are not deprived of it because of other issues linked to maybe bigger emerging markets who might not need it so much? How do we make sure that trade serves as an instrument to meet the aspirations of many developing countries who want to see themselves move their populations out of poverty? So there are some development issues that attach to WTO reform in the minds of some members. I'm just articulating to you what I've heard. So if you take all of those, I think the most important thing is members sitting down and really capturing what WTO reform means to all of them, and then deciding how they slice it. Can we then take it bit by bit so that uh, you can't do everything at once? Let's prioritize among the reforms which ones we do first and which next. So all in all, DG, looks like a lot of work ahead. I guess this means you're not going to be easing up in the near future? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) But look, I look at it differently. A lot of work ahead, Dan. But how exciting. I mean, I'd rather see a lot of work ahead, some of it extremely difficult and tough, than to be sitting back saying, wow, you know, we didn't make it again this time. We don't know what what to do next. And we are still stuck with the old issues. 
what I call legacy issues. At least now, we've dealt with some of them. We still have some, but we've demonstrated we can deal with them and we can then march forward and look also at the new issues uh, before us. We haven't even talked of the whole area of how do we make trade an instrument for inclusion, which means doing more for micro, medium, and small enterprises, doing more for women, all these are uh, issues that are also, we can now look at much more than we did before, climate and trade, uh, because we've lifted the veil. I used to call it a veil over my eyes because there were all these issues clouding the horizon. We've cleared the veil partially, and I'm quite excited. Finally, can you share with us a moment or an anecdote that you won't forget from MC12? The moments and anecdotes are not really joyful ones. <laughs> I can tell you there were all moments when I thought, oh my God, I'll just remember one that wasn't so joyful, but signifies what multilateralism means. You know, when uh, Ambassador Santiago Wills brought out the new fisheries uh, document, which was uh, somewhat different because certain articles and provisions had been taken away from the old to bring down the new, what he thought could be captured. Everybody could agree multilaterally. And um, then I got a message that the ACP group was very unhappy with it a group of developing countries from Africa, the Caribbean, and the Pacific. And then I went to see the Pacific group in particular, and the Caribbean, and they were saying this won't work for them, and therefore they were not going to support it. And you know, this was at about, I don't know, I think it was at 8 p.m. or something, on the night, remember, we were supposed to have had the closing session at 3 p.m., then it was pushed to 5 p.m., then the fisheries thing came, and then at 8 p.m. So I was saying, oh, my, at 8 p.m., how are we going to deal with this? That was a moment when I got that news that I will not forget. I went into my office uh, to take a deep breath, and uh, my long-suffering husband who had come uh, to support me was sitting in there, and, uh, you know, so he gave me a lot of comfort. Take a deep breath, think about it. How are you going to get around this one and keep going? So that was a moment around 9 p.m. on Friday. No, it must have been Thursday night, right? Thursday evening, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, a lot of people intervened. The Australians intervened with the Pacific, the Africans, and CARICOM, several ambassadors. I have to give them all credit. Everybody got involved eventually. The EU, the US, everyone came in the room, China, <laughs> and everybody, the Pacific worked really hard. And uh, by 1 a.m., they came up with a proposal uh, as to how they wanted to amend the, the, the fisheries agreement. And I tell this story because that's where you see that no matter how small a member is, they have a powerful influence. So when this group of small countries decided that this won't work for us, it stopped, it was in danger of stopping every, uh, the fisheries at any rate and probably everything else. Um, but they were able to take a constructive approach and they were able to go off and say, okay, here's what we are offering as the amendment to the fisheries agreement if it that would work for us. And luckily, 
when all several of the other members came around, they said they were okay with it. And that's how we were able to move forward. But by this time, I think it was 2 or 3 a.m. And a lot of people were waiting outside and in the halls, not quite knowing. It was very difficult. We, should, we could have communicated a bit better with those. But it was difficult to know, what do I go there and communicate to them that, look, we're on the verge of the fisheries not working? What signal would that send? Or do I tell them? So next time, we'll try and do it better with respect to communications. But it was... It was tough. It was tough. And then they came through. And uh, to me, at the end, I looked at it and said, really, this is why it's important for small countries to have this kind of multilateralism, this kind of consensus approach, difficult as it is, because they can get their voice heard. They got their voices heard. They stopped things. They got the thing amended. And at the end of the day, we, we had an outcome everyone could uh, accept. Yeah, which is the image of the critics of the WTO is that it's the big countries that uh, decide everything. And and this, I guess, was a classic example of where every member, even the smallest, has a voice. Dan, you couldn't be more right. This is a classic example. And I think there's so many NGOs I remember were saying, oh, but you went into a green room. That's a way to allude to negotiations among a small group of members. And decided things against uh, small countries and they don't have a voice. Well... We didn't do that. Here was a situation in which a set of countries, when the amendment was made, I think there was representation in the room across of the membership. It was hard for me, but at the end, I admitted that this is what the WTO is all about, giving every member a voice. So it's not true that the big members run everything. It's a great point to wrap up our conversation. Dr. Nguozi, thank you very much and congratulations. Well, thank you, Dan, but I, I want to say congratulations first and foremost to members for the work they did, ministers and ambassadors, and very proud of Secretariat staff for the work they did, and they did it with a smile too, which makes all the difference. I can't say I smiled all the time during the period, but I tried. <laughs> we are still smiling. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> This was the opening episode of the MC12 Outcome Series. We were privileged to hear from the person at the center of the negotiations. DG Okonjo-Iwala provided a big picture view that included the highlights as well as the difficult moments of the ministerial conference. In the next episode, we will throw the spotlight on fishery subsidies. You may think that's a boring technical topic for trade geeks. Well, wait and listen. It's about the oceans, the environment, the negotiating power of small developing countries, and ultimately, about you. It's this, the first environmental agreement in the WTO. This creates a very strong precedent to keep on tackling other sustainability issues. It took a mindset change from members to be able to accept that this is something that we have to do for common good. Tune in next time to Let's Talk Trade.